and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. In Britain, stoicism, bravery, death and adventure are just some of the experiences we associate with the Second World War. But almost 80 years later, and with the increasing passing of the war generation, the memory of the war, so how we make sense of it and its relevance today, seems to have flattened to the point of 2D caricature. Glib references by politicians to blitz spirit or austerity during times of hardship, along with keep calm and carry on mugs, are the enduring sclerotic memory of an event that transformed the lives of millions of people across the globe. Adding some complexity to how we remember the war, I'm thrilled to be joined by Luke Turner, author of the new book, Men at War. In his book, Luke uncovers the lives of the queer men who've been missing from the history books. In doing so, he shows that sexuality, obviously, wasn't invented in the 1960s. And he makes the case that only by looking at the people who fought in the war, their lust, love, urges and ailments, can we truly understand the nature of war and, in doing so, resist the depressing misuse of the past we've become so accustomed to. Reading Luke's book is a bit like looking at the Second World War through a kaleidoscope, one that refracts what we think we will see into a hundred tiny fragments of colour. Each shard represents the nuanced experiences of lives lived and lost and I'm excited to explore some of them with him today. Luke, welcome to the appropriately named Bunker. <laughs> yeah, it very much is, isn't it? And uh, thank you for that fantastic introduction. Should have, could have got you to write the blurb rather than do it myself. <laughs> that was brilliant. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed your book, and I've got so many questions to ask you. But first, you are a self-confessed Second World War obsessive. Why did you feel that it was important to write about the stories that were kind of missing from popular understandings of war? I think it's because my, my Second World War obsession sort of died down a little bit from teenage years onwards uh, while I got obsessed with music and misbehaving and charging <laughs> around London uh, and all sorts of things I shouldn't mention. Um, but then in recent years, it kind of came back. And weirdly, it came back at the same time as, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, this sort of misuse of the Second World War by politicians was also coming back. And I was trying to square this return of my war obsession and like building kits again, watching loads of war films and documentaries and reading loads of war books and listening to war podcasts uh, and going to war places, just the whole like war, <laughs> war immersion. You did it all. I did it all. I, like, you know, because I, I, you know, I am genuinely a proper war enthusiast. Uh, well, well, not enthusiast, that's a bad word, is it? Obsessive. You know, I am a war obsessive. But at the same time, yeah, there, there was all this nonsense by the right wing, pretty much, about about the Second World War and its exploit, and they were really exploiting it. And I wanted to try and... Ex I felt uncomfortable about that, and I was like, well, am I going that direction myself? And I was like, well, no, I'm not, that's, that's, that's nonsense. But I wanted to look at uh, that obsession and, and kind of interrogate it, and almost like try and rescue the Second World War from these awful idiots, mm. these simplistic sort of narrow-minded men who will, you know, they're classic things, you know, some Brexit bloke will put up a picture of a Spitfire and... Start wanging on about uh, <laughs> about the brave British fighting alone, and then uh, Jennifer Grant, who's a brilliant uh, Polish historian um, of the Second World War, <laughs> pointed out it was a Polish spitfire. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing, and, and and those kind of people really annoyed me. And actually, I find that what I realised was I was, I was like, actually, I'm finding these people offensive because they're really hijacking this memory. And you know, I know a lot of people who are probably on the other side of the political fence who think my Second World War obsession is a bit iffy, and they kind of assume that, uh, uh, that if you're obsessed with 
the Second World War, you're a bit of a wrong and I don't know whether you, you've had that. Oh my that God, in, I've had that so many times. In your, where I almost in your have work. to really carefully couch my interest in the Second World War with like the lives that like experienced it because otherwise it seems a bit weird. But it's really, it's cultural, right? It's exactly. Like, and and, and, and yeah. it is a defining moment in um, British and European cultural history. And I, and, I, and I felt I wanted to kind of reclaim it for people who were interested in the complexity of it and say, no, we, we need to be involved in this discussion as well as these idiots like the Faragists on the right wing because if we don't get involved in this discussion it's going to be lost to these people yeah. and, and that would be that's that's I mean not just sad and unfortunate but also dangerous yeah I do you know I really found that sometimes talking about the second world war it had just been spoken about and misused so much in the press that it just kind of got this really like gray <laughs> gray shadow hanging over it where it just became incredibly 2d boring and I don't really feel like I think people felt like the conversations around it had happened what more can we discover which is why I love your book so much because there is so much more to discover. Yeah, I mean, exactly what I say in the book is that people always go, oh, the British can't stop going on about the war. And it's true. But we, I think we, we have, there's loads of stuff we haven't talked about. And, and there's loads of stuff that's sort of hiding in plain sight, like someone like George Formby, all of his songs, the absolute fruitiness and double, double entendres and kind of they're absolute filth, some of his songs. And I was like, look, some of this stuff that's held up as being quite archetypal, classic British it, it, and, and, and quite retrogressive about the war are these indicators of something a lot more uh, lurid and brilliant and hilarious and tragic and just all these amazing sort of quite fecund sensations and emotions going on under the surface and I just wanted to sort of dive in and pull some of them out. I absolutely love how you've managed to do that. So so for our listeners who wouldn't have um, read the book yet because it's out on the 27th, what are some of the stories that kind of you found that were mo the most fascinating that kind of captured this? Well, I was I was very conscious that I didn't just want to write about gay, bisexual, queer men because at the time those men were legally pushed into a, a, a sort of a ghetto and I wanted to write about the wider masculinity around them. But mm. sort of using, I think as L LGBT men, which I am one, we, I think, have quite a unique view on masculinity, conventional masculinity. What I write about in the book, this word normal man mm. turns up a lot. And because we're removed from that, I think we have quite an interesting way of looking at it because we, we outsiders often have an interesting perspective. And so I was looking at stories, a lot of them written by um, queer men, but to illuminate the mainstream of masculinity. And I write about some sort of um, men who weren't gay at all, like Henry Danton, his particular character. I had intended to sort of try and interview as many veterans as possible because you know, there really are very few of them left. But obviously, I started writing a book in 20, March 2020, which was a bad time to be contacting pensioners who are <laughs> 100 years old. Yeah, particularly uh, bad time. And then I sort of realised that you know, it's interesting, a lot of the historiography around veteran testimony is not always that reliable anyway. I think that's something that comes up again and again, just people's memories change and are influenced by culture. So I talked to fewer people, but this one guy, Henry Danton, was incredible. Now, I got in touch with him via a ballet school in Mississippi where he was teaching still, still ballet dancing at 102, I think he was, in 101. And he was absolutely fascinating because he... His father had been killed in the First World War even before he was born. And I write in the book about that kind of traumatic legacy of the First World War on this generation who fought the Second. And I think that's something that's not very discussed in culture. 
And because he was an orphan of the First World War, he was able to go to prep school and uh, private school for the orphan sons of soldiers, which is a lovely idea, except for these schools are basically to make these orphan sons into soldiers themselves, which is kind of quite dark in, 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 in its way. And he really hated it at school. He was bullied and persecuted. He ended up in the army, but pretty much cracked up during an exercise on Salisbury Plain. And eventually was invalided out of the army in the early years of the war and became a ballet dancer. And what I found amazing about him when I interviewed him, we had this really intense conversation over Zoom, a really beautiful conversation I feel very privileged to have had, was his insistence that he was not a coward. He wasn't a conscientious objector. He just couldn't fight. He couldn't bear the idea of sticking a bayonet into someone. And I believed him. I felt that he was a genuine soul. And it made me think about if we fought the war for anything, it was the right to not fight. You know, we weren't like Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia where you get shot for not fighting. We, this, it was kind of a beautiful thing almost that the army let him not fight. And so he was really interesting. He talked very frankly about, about um, you know, you get the sort of grotty conditions of living in the war and getting crabs and being deloused and all this sort of stuff. So he was wonderful. And then there's another character, Dudley Cave, I write about, who was prisoner of the Japanese on the Burma Railroad, which people might know about from the film Bridge Over the River Kwai, and treated appallingly, as were most of those prisoners. But after the war was very um, focused on reconciliation with the Japanese and, and attracted flack for that. And he was also an LGBT activist and fought not only for the right for queer people to serve openly in the military, but also that queer people could be remembered specifically at the Cenotaph and, and would conduct cer ceremonies with outrage at the Cenotaph with Peter Tatchell. And he's a really beautiful character and, and wrote very frankly and honestly about the conditions in the camp, about sexuality, and about his battles to, to against the sort of, you know, Royal British Legion now has an LGBT wing, but it was insanely homophobic in the 80s and 90s. So he was an amazing... There's just so many. I mean, this what was, was really beautiful, was finding these characters who were slightly discussed here and there. Dudley Cave is a bit out there in some other books, I think. But Henry Danton, Dan Bellany, whose book, novel I write about, a sort of tragic love story of the Second World War, is a kind of quite unknown figure. And then more archetypal heroes like Ian Gleed, who was a classic Battle of Britain dashing hero who turns out was a, was a gay man. And that was important to me as well because I wanted to say, you know, queer men fought as hard as anyone else. Why not have somebody who's an archetypal British hero but was also having all sorts of fun at Middle Wallop <laughs> Airfield. Yeah, that seemed really important to you. I kind of got this sense that you didn't want sexuality to be like the entirety of someone's, uh, how they presented in a way. Like you kind of wanted different types of men to also be able to identify as gay or, or queer. So you kind of identify almost like a warrior trope as well as a kind of more like effeminate trope within various different people. And it seemed like that was really important to you to kind of draw that out. And I, I kind of wondered how much that was because you, felt like those characters were missing from your understanding of the war when you were growing up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kenneth Williams is a personal hero. I adore him. But he was very much the only gay man I, I could really think of when I was a, teen, a kid in the 80s and 90s who was a, a, a queer man who was a, a alive in the war. And obviously his, his presentation is camp. You wouldn't think of him as a warrior because of, you know, inherited homophobic views of what a warrior is. And so I really wanted to be able to say, actually, no, there were lots of gay men who fought very bravely. A lot of them we 
don't um, really know about. But there are these fragments of stories, and there were obviously those we don't know at all. And I think that was, I, I guess there's, there's possibly a slight critique of maybe slightly more left-wing LGBT culture, which might be a bit nervous about embracing the idea of national warriors as being queer. But I feel that that's, I wanted to push back against that as well and i wanted to say yeah let's let's embrace these people as powerful fighting people who did a lot to win the war and uh, you know and it, if you were a, a queer man in the 19 early late 1930s early 40s you probably would have known about what was going on in germany to queer men like yourself and would have had a motivation to fight very hard just as the poles shot down more German aeroplanes in the Battle of Britain than anybody else, but the Polish squadrons, I think a queer man would have more reason to fight. What I really enjoyed in, in the book was that you kind of map out a number of kind of moral quandaries that I think people on the left, in the centre, you know, people who have a relationship with the Second World War feel about how it's kind of used now. But also in terms of like, you know, how do we, like, should we should we celebrate people who killed people like you know and it was 80 years ago or almost 80 years ago and I really love the way that you kind of take us on a journey through your moral quandaries and also ours in reading those experiences. Yeah that was really important for me to do because I think um, on a personal level because I get very frustrated with these moral uh, binaries that exist particularly around you know Churchill is the obvious one to one group of people he's a an un- unimpeachable hero and you can't criticise him to another group of people he's a terrible warmongering racist and it's like well no he was a complicated person and to an extent there's truth in all of these views and I wanted to show this sort of more confused uh, history and I think you know, that's why I wanted to write a lot about Bomber Command um, because I was obsessed with the bombers I, I, I still go down to watch an Avro Lancaster fly past whenever I can and it's like that machine was used to flatten cities and it is a complicated moral issue and I wanted to sort of slightly get into that but also say the men who flew in those aeroplanes that was the most dangerous part of the British military they were incredibly brave Um, and that's why I use a a particular squadron I focus on uh, 158 squadron who are based up in East Yorkshire flying Halifax bombers very unglamorous not even not the iconic aeroplane you know a very standard squadron doing these raids night after night with appalling loss rates you know you had very little chance of surviving uh, if you were posted to a squadron like 158 in 1942-43 and uh, this this guy Bertram War who was a pacifist poet and wrote very beautifully about his pacifism and his anti-war beliefs in the early years of the war and then ends up as a bomb aimer and and apparently was extremely good at it and was being trained up to be a lead bomb aimer so his decisions would have decided who lives and dies on the ground and I just thought that was very interesting that moral complexity of a character like that that it's possibly hard for people to look at today. People who would say, yes, the bombing of Germany occupied Europe was a war crime and unjustifiable, which I don't agree with, but that's a, probably another debate. But I, I feel that people at the time were aware of this moral quandary and, and the complexity of it. And we should allow them to be aware of that, to allow them to exist in that space and maybe think about that more ourselves. Yeah, I think you really kind of captured that 
those kind of challenges that people face in their lives, but also the kind of contradictions across someone's lifespan, right? That you can be one thing before the war and then something completely different during and then something else again after. I thought that you really captured that. And I just kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about how you felt about translating those stories and the kind of pitfalls of translating those stories of individuals into a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages, how you felt relating to those like histories, their personal histories, and putting them in your in your work, in your book. Yeah, I mean, I felt I had a huge responsibility with that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a real privilege to be able to do it, but I wanted to be fair to them all. You know, even my own granddad, who I write about, both my granddads, one was a conscientious objector, one worked on railways in... Sierra Leone, and I, I quote from his, for a working class man who was a very good writer, and I quote from his letters, I did feel a huge responsibility to, d- to do that and to, and to do right by them. And the whole point of the book is, is not to, to sort of denigrate that generation. I have issues with them being seen as the greatest generation because I think that's quite lazy. But I have a huge respect for that generation. I, I, I admire them intensely, and I, I wanted to write a respectful book and to do right by them. And, you know, it is even, you know, I think there's a, there's a tendency now in LGBT culture to look look at people from the past and sort of go, oh, these people were persecuted, they were some sort of heroes, just as the other side do with World War, Second World War veterans or whatever, when actually those people were more complicated. I mean, mo- most of the LGBT gay men I found in the Second World War and uh, some women as well, they were kind of quite, re- by modern standards, quite racist. There's a, there's a lot of... Uh, fetishism of young, younger men, which is deeply uncomfortable, um, and things like that. But I, I didn't sort of connect th- those problems to them because I, I get a bit fed up of judging the past by the standards of the present, and I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to hold up these people's lives and say, look at the depth and the complexity, uh, and not that they were modern, but I think they're recognisable to us, more recognisable than perhaps these two-dimensional portraits of Second World War people we get from war films or the popular imagination. Absolutely. I think you re- that really came across in your writing. I kind of also wanted to, like, well, push you a little bit on how you kind of position these characters within your book, like even calling them characters, right, when they're like humans who had these lives and lives, obviously, that aren't easily narrativized. And I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about the idea that like they might not have identified or they might have struggled to identify with gay or queer or bisexual identities at the time and how that kind of how you feel about kind of framing them as such yeah absolutely i mean that is the i guess that's the bit that was the difficult part where i had to make a leap and say i'm going to do this but sort of couch what i was saying in kind of acknowledge that i was doing that i think like someone like ian gleed for instance who was this sort of heroic battle of britain pilot, very highly decorated, ended up as a wing leader before he was shot down actually 80 years ago last weekend uh, off the coast of North Africa. He wrote a memoir where he writes about a female lover. So he was publicly, I think, not out. But he had a, a male friend and companion during the war who is in this mem- he's basically all the roles in, 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 the, in the wartime memoir ascribed to a woman called Pam there was a real young man who was in that role so it was obviously his lover was this guy called T in the book because he was a real person I didn't want to name him him I didn't, I didn't want to out him you know that man later on had, had family and yeah I thought it was important to obscure who he was but then during the war Ian Gleed would 
when he was on the Channel Islands in this sort of like base he'd set up to, to intercept German bombers, he would borrow a Tiger Moth two-seater airplane and fly back to England to collect his younger friend and then fly him out to the Channel Islands uh, for uh, sailing trips. And I just think his his quadrant, the people flew it flying with him and his mechanics and everybody must have known what was going on because who flies off to catch, collect their younger civilian friend to bring them to the airfield and then go sailing with them? I mean... Come on, they must have known what was going on. And in terms of like outing him as a gay man, that had, that had already been done in an amazing TV series called It's Not Unusual in the late 90s when a pilot called Christopher Gotch, who was a gay activist, um, talked about having sex with Ian Gleed at Middle Wallop Airfield. I felt that outing had already happened and it's mentioned online and so on. So I, I, I felt I wasn't doing anything inappropriate in that if it, that makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. I know I write about Enid Baraud, Baraud who was uh, in the Women's Land Army and she liked to refer herself as as John I discovered very late in the process of writing the book but I refer to her as a woman because that's what she did at the time even though she apparently liked to be called John so well, it was a quite a, mi- a minefield doing that uh, and there were people I didn't put in by name because I felt it wasn't appropriate and it's difficult because I think concepts of bisexuality they just didn't really sort of exist at that time. You know, it, I do find it odd that when I talked to I talked to a woman who was like her father was an intelligence officer and he was like well, she was like well he was gay and I said well he was married to your mum and you, he had kids and there was obviously a, an ability to you know I know gay men who the possibility of having heterosexual sex is utterly repellent and they couldn't do it so it is it is really thorny and knotty and difficult and I kind of hope I've done it right I think some people probably feel I haven't because it's a difficult subject but I, I wanted to sort of show that and, and and maybe suggest that sexuality is more fluid and it always has been than we might assume One of the things that I really like is that you use individual personal experiences as a way to kind of change how we see those events in the past. So one of the things that you quote is, uh, you quote Quentin Crisp as saying that as soon as the bombs started to fall, the city of London became like a paved double bed. I just think that's such, such a, a brilliant quote, it's isn't such it? such <laughs> an excellent quote. It's such an excellent quote. And I just think that the Blitz specifically, pardon the pun, but it's, you know, it is flattened into this kind of... <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of, you know, it's this kind of idea of like blitz spirit and like, you know, keeping calm and carrying on instead of like a very complex range of experiences. Angus Calder or it, you know, in like the Amazing. myth of the blitz. Amazing so, book. you know, th- this idea that like, you know, there was looting, there was stealing, there was assault, but also, as you point out, there was sex. Right. And I kind of wanted to ask, you know, why do you think that these events have been, you know, kind of just reduced to such simple, simple narratives? I think because people are afraid of sexuality. I really, I really feel that we in Britain, that is one of our great national problems is that we're afraid of sexuality and afraid of discussing it. And I kind of think in the war, the, there was a lot of bawdiness around. I mean, it's referred to in things like Punch, it's in, in George Formby's songs. There was a sort of sense of bawdiness and, 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 and sexuality, all the it all came clamping down in the 50s. And I think we're in this sort of repressive, some of that hangover of the repression is still there. And it's almost like in the 60s, you had counterculture and, and sexual revolution. But I, I feel that was sort of quite narrow. And the sexual revolution had been going on for years beforehand. And I, I do think it's a shame because, that, like you say, that this sort of 
I, I mean, I grew up with this idea of the, the, the these views of the Blitz, the Blitz spirit, the cheeky Cockney carrying on, and all of that, because that's that's what culture fed us. And Angus Calder's Myth of the Blitz book is amazing. I really recommend that to to anyone who's interested in this period. It's one of the best Second World War books I've ever read. But he really looks at how it was a lot more complicated, and morale was pretty bad. And yeah, like you say, there was looting and. People were depressed and afraid, and it was awful. But I, I think it's you know imagine being in this time when you, the death might feel quite imminent, but there's a blackout going on. I mean, how what a wonderful opportunity to get up to mischief. I think there's a sort of squeamishness, particularly among that kind of military establishment or historical establishment and the right, whoever, to acknowledge this this complicated sexuality that was going on: the heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual. Everybody. Why do you think it's important to bring in these kind of stories of sexuality into like the public consciousness, the public realm of the Second World War? Why does it matter that we tell these stories? Like, you know, how do they offset the kind of images that we might have seen at air shows or in museums or maybe even in airfix kits? Yeah, I mean, I think they, once they offset them, I think they complement them. It just paints that bigger picture. And I think it's important to do it now because we're living in a time of you know increasing homophobia from the the same people who like to summon the second world war politically are the same people who are uh transphobic trying to clamp down on lgbt education in schools almost like sort of bring back section 28 which made my life a misery and when i was a kid uh and and caused all me all sorts of problems so i think if we're if we're able to say to these people look actually the this war that you're constantly summoning in your rhetoric was more complicated and was fruity and queer and funny and tragic and all these beautiful complicated things then that disrupts this contemporary homophobia i mean take transgender issues now i do think it's kind of amazing that roberta cowell who i write about in the book who was the spitfire pilot and fought very hard and was shot down in prisoner of war camp and then became and then transitioned the surgery used for her pioneer, her pioneering surgery used for her came directly from military medicine, and I think that's a sort of really powerful thing to acknowledge and and to make people aware of that medical techniques used for the trans community now came directly from the Second World War, and I think that's very beautiful as well as a legacy. So, really struck me that like with our landscapes changing so much, but also with veterans dying out. We used to be able to call up our grandparents and then we felt like we had an instant connection to that war history. But also you used to be able to walk down the road and see like, you know, little areas that maybe hadn't been built on in London, which has been completely lost to the gentrified city. But also even in the countryside, you know, like pillboxes or whatever are like crumbling to dust. As we lose these physical markers and also the people that fought, what is the kind of point in thinking about or even remembering the Second World War? I think because of the importance of uh, remembering it due to the exploitation of it politically and also because there's that complacency that Second World War... You know, First World War was supposedly the war to end all wars. Second World War was kind of, we well, can't let something that appalling happen again. And then we had the Cold War and then that supposedly finished and... You know, it's been abundantly clear from my point of view from about 10 years that we've found the Cold War down the back of the sofa, as is now very obvious with what Putin's doing to Ukraine uh, and the fear in Central and Eastern European countries about what that and, and the Baltic states about what that means for them. But like you say, with all this stuff disappearing, it is more slippery. And that's why I hope, 
that's why I wrote the book, really, for, to have something that hopefully a lot of people might read, and then it can it can help sort of resist the toxification of that legacy. And in, in the same way, there's some really good academic work and popular histories work coming out about the um, role of soldiers from the empire and non-white soldiers and like black airmen and so on coming out now. And I think that's an incredibly important part of the new history of the war, which has really been ne neglected, I think. That's, that's only, it feels like it's only very recently we're starting to actually talk about the contribution the empire as well as made and you know and, and that's that's the crazy thing now this sort of britain alone myth is is so toxic and so exploited and so prevalent in the national consciousness at the moment in a way it wasn't in the second world war because there was like the punch cartoon when there's a soldier which i refer to the book but there's a soldier on the cliff looking out to sea in 19 spring of 1940 you know europe conquered saying so then alone and there's Comrade says, yes, all 500 and whatever million of us. Everybody at the time, it was all over the media that it, Britain wasn't alone because we had a massive great empire and a huge Royal Navy spread across it. And people just, that, that's not part of the discussion. And I think it's important that, that those stories come. I'm not the person to t tell that. I can talk about furtive <laughs> queer sexuality, but I'm a white man. So, so it's for other people to tell that story. But we have to, we have to tell those stories. And, I, and I, I really don't want people to stop talking about the Second World War. It's endlessly fascinating. And I think important to carry on discussing it. Fabulous. Luke, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Listeners, Luke's brilliant book, Men at War, is out on the 27th of April and can be found in our show notes and in all good bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing that you're supporting independent media. I'm Dr Kasia Tomaszewicz. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Dr. Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. Our managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>